DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by Father Michael Driscoll, who is a priest of the Diocese of Peoria, Illinois. He was ordained in 1992 and has been pastor of several parishes and is currently serving as a chaplain at St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Ottawa, Illinois. He has a master's degree in moral theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary and a PhD in counselor education and supervision from Regent University. With Father Michael Driscoll, we go inside the pages of Demons, Deliverance, and Discernment, Separating Fact from Fiction About the Spirit World. Published by Catholic Answers Press. Father Driscoll, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It is a provocative book, Demons, Deliverance, and Discernment. It's an area where angels sometimes fear to tread, and you've decided to write a book. What compelled you? Uh, kind of, I guess I kind of backed into it. I had gone back to school, gosh, um, going on 10 years ago to take some counseling classes and stayed with that, um, ended up getting a Ph.D. in it. But along the way, as I was working for the Master's, I was talking on the phone occasionally to a priest I know in another state who um, has a psychology background as well. And um, he had mentioned that the bishop there had taught, had him look into a couple of situations where trying to sort out whether a person had, you know, mental problems and or, you know, uh, demonic problems. And so we talked, we would talk about that on the phone a couple of times, um, how he was going about that. And so as I kept going on, you know, finished the master's degree and kept, kept on going, I thought it'd be neat to do a dissertation on that topic. So that was my deck. My doctoral dissertation was entitled, How Do Catholic Exorcists Distinguish Between Demon Possession and Mental Disorders? And then kind of wrote the book somewhat from that, although that was more a little more technical and a little more into the details of, of mental disorders, whereas the, the book is uh, less, a little bit lighter on that side and, and heavier on the theology and, and doctrines and practice of the Church. And to, just to be clear for everyone, you are not the exorcist for your particular diocese? Thank you. I, I always like to make that clear. I am not. That's correct. I've, um, uh, I've assisted a few exorcisms in other places, but um, uh, right, my diocese does not have an exorcist appointed at this time. Yeah, it's a subject area that, if not handled carefully, wouldn't you say, can exacerbate those who may be having either psychological or maybe spiritual problems as well. Right. You don't want to, obviously, a, a problem that can that can be in, you know, modern psychology is ignoring the spiritual aspect. Well, that's, that's a problem, not, you know, just to ignore that. On the flip side, if I meet someone who, you know, says that, uh, you know, they think a demon has been uh, talking to them, I don't want to immediately say, oh, gosh, you probably got a demon inside you and we got to deal with that. Because that, if it's schizophrenia, that would just make it worse. The person say, oh, my gosh, now I've got a priest telling me I've got demons, when they might not. So you don't want to jump to that conclusion either. Now, it, when we talk about the activity of the, the enemy, that there are essentially four modes, if, that's, if we, can, we can say that, and the, most, the ordinary activity of the devil is through temptation, isn't it? And that's the one we should be most concerned about because it's the most common, and, uh, and it can land us in hell, you know, giving into temptations to serious sin and, and building up habits of serious sin. Um, and, and, of course, devils are not the only source of temptation. We've got the, 
the devil, the, the world, and uh, and the flesh. So got to have to be aware aware of all of them, not giving any temptations to any of them. Uh, more certainly, we're going to sometimes, but try and avoid the occasions when possible. Uh, repent when we sin. All those good things that we know. All those good practices that we know. I think we have to recall, especially those who may be skeptical of that particular activity. I, I mean, just the the fact that we profess that we believe in the visible and invisible. Uh, at least every Sunday in our creed. And in that invisible realm, there are those spirits that are good and bad, and that you chronicle that, how it is taught in the scriptures. Well, and right. If, um, there's, there's number one, when someone asks, um, what, what makes you believe that uh, there are demons, that they can possess people? Well, because it's in the gospel. If we believe the gospels are, are what Jesus really said and did, then we believe that. Um, you know, and the, the you get uh, I would I would call them the fringe of the materialists who you think that, uh, you hear that saying. Well, if I can't see it under a microscope or telescope, I don't believe in it. Oh, really? So you don't believe in things like uh, like courage and cowardice, or love and hate, or cruelty and kindness? All those things that are real things but they're not seen in a telescope or microscope. I mean, if all we are is a bunch of molecules bouncing around, then, uh, wow, then even the, even the materials doesn't exist. He's just a bunch of molecules bouncing around either. So in my mind, that's kind of a silly extreme that, that some would go to, that I only believe what I can see. Well, no, you don't, because then you would not, you would not believe anything. You wouldn't be capable of belief. In Demons, Deliverance, and Discernment, Separating Fact from Fiction, Father Driscoll, you do such a thorough job of chronicling the extraordinary activity of those evil spirits as well, and how the exorcist, that one who has the authority of his bishop, and, and hence the authority of the church, deals with those areas of oppression, obsession, and even, in rare cases, possession. And it's important to note that, as I do there, that oppression, obsession, you won't, those are handy terms that exorcists use, but they don't all use them in the same way because the church doesn't have a, uh, you don't find those in the catechism, you don't find those in the rituals. So those are more just kind of handy terms that exorcists and others in the church have gotten used to using. But I, I think it's important to note that those aren't official terms. So in other words, if I meet someone who seems to be, um, you know, seeing seeing or hearing demons, and I don't really see anything else wrong with them, or, or I just, you know, maybe they've got some kind of a demonic problem that's not fully possession, but it's above temptation. So it's worth using the terms, but just just to be to note that they're not official church terms. We don't have, you can't find the definitions of them. So they just generally mean something in between. A lot of times the exorcists will, will, will use those two terms. Oppression meaning some kind of affliction from the outside. Um, so let's say if it's, it seems to be, um, well, even someone like St. John Vianney, who seemed to be getting you know, physically afflicted by demons from you know, attacking him physically, that might be oppression. Obsession is more the demon attacking a person's thoughts, just as the word sounds, obsession, the devil is putting obsessive thoughts in a person's mind. Um, so that's generally how those two terms are, are used. And what's really, again, so wonderful about being those who are in full communion, uh, as a Roman Catholics who are in full communion with the Church of Christ, the, the mystical body, that there is that healing that can occur when those assaults happen, and that, again, it comes through the representatives through the priesthood. 
Right, and I guess I'm a little surprised when I talk to people. I shouldn't be surprised, but um, every priest, after he's been a priest for a little while, and I presume ministers of other religions might, might get the same kind of phone calls about um, what we might call a haunted house. People don't always say it that way, but they think they've got something there, whether it be things moving or sounds or lights, electronic things going on and off, whatever the case may be. Um, and certainly a priest can go, you know, give a, bless, a house blessing, which he should do. But we've also got to make sure we impress on people a house blessing isn't like a, it's not like a, a magic spell, you know, that's, that we're going to cast. What is the person doing in the rest of their spiritual life? Because if they're not keeping any prayer time, if they're in habits of serious sin, and they want me to come over and bless the house, well, I can do that, but... <laughs> they're going to open the door right back up to if there really is something going on there. But if the person's not taking care of their spiritual life, uh, one blessing, and then it's it's like they reverse the they reverse it as soon as they go back to bad habits. Mm-hmm. So we've got to really impress on them. Yes, I can bless your house, and that is helpful. But you've got to do your part here. Yeah, I, it, that kind of puzzles me as well. I'm not trying to to judge others, but it does make one pause when you do receive a house blessing and then you proceed to turn on uh, the television and bring in all kinds, you know, particular programming that is really uh, can offend virtue. I'm trying to say that delicately. How am I doing, Father? <laughs> yeah, well, and I'm thinking even, uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly television shows, but I mean, even there are, you know, people's practices too. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't go into living a life of mortal sin and expect a house blessing to help a lot. It can help a little, um, you know, for a while, but I, yeah, just you've got to make sure, you know, we're doing the right things morally. Otherwise, it just becomes, you know, an, an empty ritual. Well, and I've heard it said by exorcists that I've, I've come to know, and I, if I'm not mistaken, may have even been said by the saints, that one good confession is better than a hundred exorcisms. Right, it certainly is. Um, a confession takes a soul can take a soul that's in a state of mortal sin on the path to hell and change it to the you know into into a saint on the path mm-hmm. to heaven. Exorcism doesn't do that. It's exorcism is interesting because it's a sacramental. It's not the power of a sacrament, and yet it, it's specifically for driving out a demon or demons, which no sacrament is specifically for that purpose. So it's, it's just a little bit different, I guess. Um, but certainly it is, those two things are, are true, that it's a sacramental, and the sacraments give us more sanctifying grace. So overall they do more. Um, but the Church has the sacramentals for specific purposes, you know, so blessing of holy water, um, you know, same thing. It's, it's helpful in driving out demons. Um, but yeah, I think every every priest I think would agree with that. You know, gosh, Holy Communion and confession are more powerful things overall. It's just in certain circumstances, uh, the exorcism right seems to be the right thing to for you know to solve this particular problem of a demon attacking a person. Well, and recently the United States Catholic bishops uh, approved the a newer rite of exorcism to be used that addresses certain pastoral concerns. And there seems to be a greater awareness with more and more bishops and more official teaching, can we call them institutions, that are training the exorcists. I mean, even our own Holy Father, Pope Francis, has spoken in some terms about the need for this particular, I'll call it again, that that healing ministry of the Church through the priesthood. Right, and actually that, that new rite um, was uh, put out in 1999, but it was already revised in 2004. And as you mentioned, what the bishop, American bishops did was uh, just earlier this year finished an English 
translation of it and submitted it to Rome, then that will be an English-language version. Something neat that you can find on their website, it came out just before um, my book went to print, so we were able to include some uh, a few notes from it, was uh, just a neat, and I would say it was short, I think it was only a couple pages, eight and a half by 11 pages, the bishops put out a question and answer on, on the whole topic as well. So what, that came out just when we had just time to, to incorporate it. And of course, I was very anxious as I began to read it. I hope I don't contradict anything here or see mm-hmm. anything. Um, but no, it was, it was very, I thought it was very good. Uh, anyone who wants to get a, a quick two-page uh, question and answer, um, I'm sure that's on the bishop's website, and I found that helpful. Throughout our conversation so far, I have made a point to emphasize the role of the priesthood because it was very important in your book. You had the particular chapter that spoke about what you've called the deliverance drama and how there is a need for us to understand those who would would like to be called deliverance ministers. In all reality, they really don't have that ability to be able to use that term. Am I correct, Father? But there's certainly the Catholic Church as a whole does not have any title like that. And and that's not that's not confined to, to lay people. Priests too, if they you know, say they've got a deliverance ministry. Okay, well the church does not have any title giving that to a priest. The church does not have any ritual for that. Church does not have any definition of what deliverance is. So I'm very, uh, I, when I hear that, I have a, a, you know, a red flag go up. Okay, what is, what exactly are you doing here? Because I don't see it in the church. Now, sometimes the answer is a priest saying, oh, well, if we know someone who seems to have, or we think they've got some de- demonic problem, well, we get a few people and we pray and, and ask God, you know, to drive the demon out and sprinkle holy water. Oh, well, I have a bigger problem when I start to see it publicized and and person talking about particular methods. I include in 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 my book some, you know, things from different deliverance ministers saying, "Here's how you do it, and here are the most powerful prayers." Well, the prayers that they made up were borrowed from somewhere because the church doesn't have ritual prayers like that. Unless we're going to talk about the prayers the church does have, which is what I I include in the appendix, and we all use the Saint Michael the Archangel prayer. There's a Cardinal Sunans, he passed some years ago, he wrote on the topic, um, he said the most powerful deliverance prayer is the Lord's Prayer, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the rite of exorcism tells the priest that throughout the rite, anytime he wants, he should pray the, uh, the Lord's Prayer and the Hail Mary and the Creed. So um, I include some prayers from saints and some from liturgical, you know, the Liturgy of the Hours. So those are, I, I, personally, I'm much more comfortable with that than someone saying, gosh, I found this prayer and it's a really powerful one against demons okay, it's fine to make up prayers, but to pretend that there's certain ones, it becomes kind of an esoteric kind of a you know, secret knowledge. I've got the secret on how to drive out demons, and I'm not comfortable with that when it, become, when it reaches that point. And I'm also not comfortable with the, the publicity sometimes of advertising and publicizing. I'm going to be deliver, doing deliverance at this time and place. I'm uncomfortable with that. It is an area that can be very spiritually hazardous if... It is done out of what we really have termed the order that the church has established. So if lay people take upon themselves those activities that really are are meant and were conferred upon priests, and I'm talking about those imperative prayers to cast out things or do certain things that are necessarily in the preview, that, that's problematic. Right. Um, and when you say um, imperative prayers, I presume what we're talking about are the ones that are... 
exorcism in in the kind of classical sense of that word is um, kind of the other side of the coin of prayer. Prayer is when I address God or his angels or saints. Exorcism is when I'm addressing the demons. So uh, um, in those imperative prayers, you know, demon, I cast you out in the name of Jesus Christ, however, whatever wording is used. And um, yeah, I'm not comfortable personally using those other than when the church allows me to, which since I'm not an appointed exorcist, um, it comes up in the... um, old ritual of baptism, which priests are allowed to use now, and, and I really like that. A couple of the, I'm trying to think if it's in the blessing of holy water, or again, I can't remember if that one in the old ritual is addressing the demons, actually, or if that was in asking God, but, but I'm fine with those when the church says, here's a ritual for priests to use. Oh, okay, well, that's good, because then I'm not messing with the demon. The church is <laughs> addressing the demon, and the church is going to have that power. But I like, for example, I don't know any priest who would ever use the prayers of, of exorcism without his bishop's permission, because then you're by yourself taking on the demon while well, you're going to lose. Um, on the flip side, you've got the church, the church's authority, you know, the bishop has appointed you exorcist. Well, then you're going to win because the church is more powerful than the devil. Would you say, Father Driscoll, I mean, this is an area that a greater understanding is occurring every day? I mean, especially for the church, the, I, I know that it for some, this was an area that seemed to be struggling in a dormancy, maybe, for a couple decades, particularly after the changes in the liturgy. And, and you know, some would say maybe after Vatican II, but the, the Church is beginning to respond to this more, and our understanding continues to grow. Yeah. Um, there was a priest who, the first exorcism he did, I can't remember if it was like around 1980, let's say, something like that, and when he... he something that he thought was very problematic and talked and went to talk to his bishop about it. And the bishop um, said, well, you know as much about this as anyone, so gave me the authority right then. The priest's like, well, I don't know. And the bishop says, well, neither do I. None of us do. So they had kind of gone by the wayside, I think, for, you know, whatever reasons during the confusion of, of you know, late 60s. Um, so hopefully that's getting settled. Um, I think we do need to be cautious about going the other direction of, of we meaning you know priests lay people in the church of thinking there are too many cases of possession out there I, I, the right the, the ritual of exorcism lists three specific signs kind of implies a fourth sign which is a negative reaction to sacred things um, but I personally if I'm going to believe someone's possessed show me the money I want to see the three signs that the right of exorcism tells me are signs um, if I'm just, I, I'm very uncomfortable. I've met a number of people who said that they they have a special gift where they can tell by the feel or whatever the Holy Spirit is informing them about demons in a person and stuff. The rite of exorcism doesn't say we need to depend on that to know or to, to know if a person is possessed. The rite doesn't say um, we need that for driving out the demons. So I'm like, well, why do we need that? Uh, the right, if it were important, the rite would have included it. This is the rite that goes back, as I said, hundreds of years, and it doesn't mention that. Um, I don't see why we need that. It, it just lends an element, I think, of, I guess the word I used was melodrama. <laughs> right. Well, and the the danger to, particularly to lay people who get involved in this kind of ministry, is the the very real susceptibility to, can we say, spiritual pride? I think so. Um Hey, I'll make a confession. Do I think it would be um, kind of a neat thing in some way to be an, a, a, you know, appointed to do an exorcism? Yes, I do, which is, uh, so now I'm on record for that, and I've told that to people before. So that's a good reason that pretty well should ensure that I never do an exorcism. You know, it should be someone who really doesn't want to do it. That's who, if I were the bishop, I would, you know, find, mm-hmm. <laughs> find the person who fits. And, and here's uh, a 
I've got the right in front of me. Here's a few things. In fact, it's the first. There are instructions at the beginning of the rite of exorcism. Mm -hmm. And it says that uh, the exorcist that should be, he should be properly distinguished for his piety, prudence, and integrity of life, should fulfill his devout undertaking in all constancy and humility, um, being un utterly immune to any striving for human aggrandizement, relying not on his own but on the divine power. What, you know, what a great start to the rite of exorcism, telling it's actually those are instructions kind of for the bishop, saying here's what to look for in the priest that you're going to appoint for that. So, yeah, any so anything that kind of sounds like that, I'm just thinking, boy, that, that doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like what the church is telling us here. And, and I, I don't think any... When priests are out there, or lay people even saying, "Hey, I'm doing this for prideful reasons," I, I think it's more subtle than that. We've got to be aware of of uh, doing things to get attention. Remember how Jesus, when he was, uh, you know, driving out demons or doing heal miraculous healings, when he could, he was pulling the person aside and doing it quietly and telling them to keep it quiet. It became impossible as he started to have crowds. But that, that's the example for us. What saint who, who, who performed miracles or drove out demons ever advertised that they were going to be doing it at a mm -hmm. certain time and place? I mean, they just never, saints never did that. Mm -hmm. So I'm uncomfortable when I see that being done. Certainly nothing wrong with a, again, how we define it, a healing service. The church doesn't really have a specific healing service. But hey, a priest offering a mass, um, praying for healing and anointing the sick who, who need the anointing of the sick there, uh, well, all that's great, of course. It's when it starts to get um, claims of I'm going to do miraculous healings or, or whatever, that's when I start to find it problematic. I certainly believe in miracles. I don't believe in advertising in advance that anyone's going to do one. Well, I think that's a, a very important point because in the pastoral care of the sick, I mean, that, that is a, a right of the church and that is something that can be implemented. It gives you different options, whether in, in the context of a mass or outside, but it is the priest who is the the presider, the the one officiating. And I guess the, the concern out there is for those who will hear, um, especially Catholics, hear of services of in areas of healing and deliverance that are conducted from programs that were adapted essentially from Protestant responses. And we, and we should be careful, shouldn't we? Right. See that... I get the impression, again, I don't think anyone is, Catholics have thought this through explicitly in this way, but what I think is just kind of what some have fallen into is um, in the 80s I was involved in pro-life activity, and when I, that's when I first started some pro-life things when I was in the seminary, and that's when I was first around some of this, uh, you know, Protestant, you know, Pentecostal kind of people doing deliverance and talking about it, whatever, and I said, wow, what, what is all this about? Well, then I started to see Catholics because they're careful not to do the rite of exorcism unless they're appointed to, but they found, oh, but if we don't call it possession, if we call what we think is going on, you know, um, something else, or and uh, we're going to do deliverance and not exorcism, well, then we get to do those things that the Pentecostal ministers are doing, too. So, yeah, I feel like it kind of, we borrowed from, from a non-Catholic source, and they borrowed from us, so it doesn't really make sense. Certainly nothing wrong, just like there's nothing wrong with, lay people or priests praying for people to get well from their sicknesses. Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, that's always a good thing. Same thing with praying that God will deliver us from spiritual attacks of the devil. It's when, here's an, a simple example, when I hear someone saying, oh, they, they 
they laid hands or they uh, they laid hands and they prayed over someone well that's nice they could have also folded their hands and prayed for them and it would be the same thing mm-hmm. but somehow when we hear certain buzzwords like prayed over oh that sounds like it's going to be more powerful than just praying for well no it's really not more powerful it's just another way of saying it you know what's the difference of if i fold my hands or lay my hands now if i'm doing a church ritual it tells me to lay my hands ah then it's then i'm following the ritual mm-hmm. otherwise it's just another way of doing it and it's we just shouldn't make it sound like it's got some greater power than the church is giving it. Mm. What's been the reaction of the book, Father Driscoll, since it's come out, especially when you have such a, an outstanding publisher like Catholic Answers? Yeah, and even though I've, gosh, I've known of Catholic Answers, again, since I entered the seminary in the 80s, back before the computer, <laughs> before the Internet or anything, when they were putting out those great pamphlets, mm-hmm. um, I remember ordering those to pass around at places, and, and so, you know, I, I feel like I, I hit the jackpot when Catholic Answers agreed to publish the book. Um, that was I really hit the jackpot with that. Um, the reaction I've gotten is, is uh, um, all positive from from the biased people I talk to, you know, <laughs> family and friends and people I know. So um, it'll, be, it'll be nice to get some. It'll be good for humility, and it'll be good for uh, my learning to to get some negative reviews and have people pointing out um, what they think are shortcomings in that. Um, but again, to credit Catholic Answers, um, I, I learned about the, this is my first book to be published. Uh, I learned a lot about the publishing process, and it's definitely a lot better book than it was when I first uh, presented it to them. Uh, a lot of improvements from the editors there. Well, and I, I would imagine, are you hearing from exorcists at all? They may, exorcists may say, you know, rightfully so, they may say, I don't think I'm going to really learn anything from this. Um, they, exorcists talk to one another. There are a couple of these conferences around, as you said, where they get to discuss their their differences. And, and there are some different opinions that are allowed within the, within the, you know, within the church, within the rite of exorcism, little differences on how to interpret certain things. So I'm pretty... I guess I didn't write with them as my audience, but I would love to hear from them again to point out some things that they think were shortcomings or whatever. Um, so no, I've not yet not heard from the ecstasy yes, yet, the, the ones that I know or, or any others. Well, and I think what, again, what you've done is you've shined a very bright light on an area that, I mean, if it remains in darkness, it could be misinterpreted. And yet when you shine that light, wow, I mean, the church really does have a, a a really quite a great grip on it. Yeah, and we just, uh, I think there's a, a, a good balance between um, that we don't want to uh, keep it all secret because then it sounds, it's, then it just seems like we're trying to be spooky about it or whatever, and that's not what we're trying to do. On the other hand, um, we don't want to base our faith on, on a relationship with the devil, you know, on a negative relationship with the devil. That's a side effect of our faith being based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. So it should be a part of it, of, of, you know, the, uh, of our spiritual life, you know, dealing with that aspect, but a side part, you know, it's not the focus. And that, so you never want to do that, never want to make dealing with the devil our, the, our main focus, we want to make dealing with Jesus Christ our main focus, and the devil's kind of on the sideline there. Well, Father Driscoll, I, again, I, I think it, it is a fascinating work, and I just Thank very much. and I pray for you as you continue in your ministry of healing, just being Christ to those you encounter all the time in your chaplaincy. Thank you so much, Father Driscoll. Thanks very much. It's been great to get to talk to you. With Father Michael Driscoll, we've gone inside the pages of Demons, Deliverance, and Discernment, Separating Fact from Fiction About the Spirit World. 
To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to catholic.com, the website for its publisher, Catholic Answers Press. Or you can obtain it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.